0: Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers Podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Laura Barger, pianist with Yarnwire. We hope you enjoy.
1: Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my wonderful co-pilot today is the lovely, delightful, and wonderful Dr. Blair Kerner. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Who do we have as a guest today? Well, we have one member of the incredible piano percussion quartet, Yarnwire, the lovely and wonderful Laura So let's talk a bit about yarn wire. They are a new music quartet dedicated to the promotion of creative, experimental new music in the U.S. and abroad. They did particularly well in the M Prize, which was a huge, extraordinarily huge chamber music competition that was around for a few years and have just been commissioning a bunch of different composers. They have really dedicated themselves as an ensemble to expanding the representation of composers that they have on their roster, including but not limited to those who identify as women, LGBTQIA+, Black, African, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, or Arab, so that it might better reflect our communities and amplify the creative potential of everyone in the world. So without further ado, we'd love to introduce Laura. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks,
2: Rosie. I'm absolutely, and Blair, I'm (laughs) absolutely
1: delighted to be here. Now, I love this. I loved this when I was reading your bio that you describe yourselves as starting and with and maintaining a no real plan. <laughs> That's clearly been a very successful model for you. And as someone who <laughs> likes to plan but go with the flow, it's also you're clearly people after my own mind. But can you talk about how a mix of structure and freeform planning has factored into your success? In particular, talking about how you... I identify one key thing to maintaining a chamber group for over 15 years?
2: Yeah, that is a great question. And I would say that, (laughs) you know, the, uh, with no real plan, I think that really refers to the fact that when we started, we were still students, and we were you know, there was not yet the tradition of degree programs or professional development uh, networks to the extent that you Mm -hmm. see now within contemporary music. And so we didn't really have, you know, the sort of business plan in place. We didn't have a website when we started, you know, we just were students who really enjoyed playing together. And I would say, you know, we probably played for, a good six months to a year before we even decided on Mm. a name. I think we've had our first concert Mm. mid-2006. It's hard to remember now. uh, And it was a a guest artist concert at the University of Notre Dame. And their publicity department said, "Uh, we need a name. We were like, oh. (laughs) Because up to that point, all of our concerts had been doctoral Mm -hmm. recitals. Uh, at Stony Brook University where we were students. So, you know, we didn't, That I guess that's kind of what I think of when I think about the fact that we lacked a plan is that our real only plan at the beginning was playing music together and we enjoyed playing. And there was this sort of like tight little ball of repertoire for piano and percussion quartet that we wanted to explore. Um, and we didn't really know we figured we'd probably have to start commissioning at some point, but we didn't know if the group would go on long enough to get to that point.
3: With the fluidity of your group, you know, I'm assuming that since then things might have come a little bit more into structure, but who knows what key thing, what one identifying thing do you think has been crucial to having success for the past 15 years?
2: It's fair to say that, you know, although we definitely started with the Without a plan, we definitely made a plan. And I think one of the biggest realizations or things that helped propel us forward, strangely, was realizing that we needed to have regular rehearsal. We needed a physical space that we could exist in. When I think about all the other things that the other structures that have come along, the way that the organization has Progress because we are now a 501c3 nonprofit. And I think those are really the sort of crucial moments in a way was we need to play as well as we possibly can as a quartet, as a group. Um, and that requires regular rehearsal in order to have regular rehearsal, once we were no longer students at Stony Brook, we needed a studio space. For percussionists, that's a huge deal because, you know, it's not like, I mean, a piano, yeah, right, you think piano, it's hard enough. Um, But yeah, just to have a physical space where we could go and and work. Um, So yeah, those, I think of those two things as real uh, watershed moments.
3: Speaking of crucial moments, uh, as mentioned earlier, you were the winners of the M Prize in his opening year. So, could you talk a little about that competition and how it might help launch the career of the group? And also, do you think similar competitions should be available? Are they available for non traditional chamber ensembles? I have
2: to say, speaking for myself individually, I really dislike competitions for musicians. I think you know, uh, maybe appropriately, I think it was Bartok. Competitions are for horses, not musicians. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I feel so strongly about that um, as an individual. I think one of my, like, my own personal realizations as a young musician was that my professor in undergrad started pressuring me to look into all of these competitions. And I thought, oh, you mean I just have to practice the same program for two years and play nothing but that? and then go to competitions, you know, I, it it was something that was totally unappealing to me. So when Russell uh, Greenberg, one of the percussionists in your wire, approached me and he was like, Hey, did you see this listing for this competition? And I was like, competition, really? (laughs) He was like, you know, we should just try Who knows? Like maybe nothing will happen, but if it does, you know, what's the, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? And he's right. I mean, that's true most of the time. It's if you don't try for something, then nothing will happen. And the worst that will happen is absolutely nothing. So we thought we would enter this competition. We give it a try. We'd, we'd see what happened. And, you know, I don't think we really had a big expectation going into it because you really have in any competition, you have no idea what people value what they're looking for you know we also our repertoire is very subjective and we have a very wide range of repertoire. It was just I you know we had no idea so I would say that the whole experience was a series of very pleasant surprises mm-hmm. um, and it was it was very affirming because I think one of the for me one of the nicest pieces of feedback that we got, Uh, from one of the judges afterwards that we spoke with, they said, you know, after you played, I turned to my colleagues and I said, these guys are the real deal. And they said that they could see that our chamber music skills, our our ability to play with each other was so natural and free. And for me, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. like I said before, that was kind of all that we ever wanted was Mm -hmm. just to play really great music we love and to play it as well as possible so it was that was really affirming and you know the fact that we didn't win I mean like I said we weren't really expecting much uh to begin with so it was still just a really positive experience I would
1: say. So moving on you have changed members a few times over the years and we've asked this of many of our groups who have had personnel changes, but we just wondered how you handled this process of finding new performers. And also how did that change the dynamic of the ensemble each time? You know,
2: and this, this I think has to do with with any group of people working together, not mm-hmm. just necessarily in music, um, but anytime you have a sort of tight-knit small team of people working on a project together. It really only works if people are clear about their goals, their intentions, like what are they hoping to get out of the whole experience? You know, And when you're young and just recently out of student days, you don't really know what your goals, you're, well, I just wanna make music, I wanna play, I wanna play as many concerts as possible. Yes. You know, that's, it's so simple in a way. Um, But then I think as you get older, uh, you're forced to reckon with that fact of, well, how am I going to pay my rent? How Mm -hmm. am I going to pay my utilities? And I think that, you know, we came out of a graduate program uh, where the majority of the students are actually doctoral students. Mm -hmm. And at one point or another, a number of our members they got jobs or they wanted to look for jobs. Mm -hmm. And and by jobs, I mean a teaching position uh, in a university. So they were looking for that stability, maybe that playing in a new music ensemble uh, alone doesn't really provide. And as you're both well aware, I'm sure that requires sometimes that if you want a position, you have to be willing to pick up and move across mm-hmm. the country. Looking for new members, um, you know, when again, when we were starting out, because we we changed pianists, uh, the other pianists changed fairly early on. Uh, Daniel Schlossberg, who was our other founding pianist, he got a position at the University of Notre Dame, Mm -hmm. and you know we hadn't really built an identity yet as a group, and I think the process of sort of choosing a replacement was very informal, Mm -hmm. because we still We weren't in a place to say, well, you know, we can offer somebody, you know, this number of concerts per year and they're gonna make this amount. So we just asked another one of our colleagues um, from Stony Brook at that point, who we knew was living in New York city. And he said, sure. We played again for another few years and things began to pick up a little bit more. And when he left for another professional opportunity, it was a little bit different when we found Ning Uh, But similar in the fact that, you know, we couldn't ask someone to give up uh, their own projects or work to join us. Um, And it really just sort of we sort of lucked out because even though Ning was a student with us, we didn't really know her she sort of overlapped um, at a time when we were almost on our way out and she didn't live on Long Island where mm-hmm. the school is based. So yeah. we didn't get to know her as well, but she had been playing um, for a couple of years for um, the Bangana Can All-Stars. Mm. And so I knew she had a strong interest in contemporary music. You know, she came out of the program at Eastman School of Music. And so she has has a really strong background, not just in contemporary music, but her pianistic skills mm-hmm. are incredible. And we just invited her to come and play with us. We did a few rehearsals, we gave her some of our repertoire and it went well. She, we talked with her about you know, what we were doing and what our plans were and, and then she came on board. So we didn't really have an audition process. Um, it's so difficult to audition for a job when you don't know what that job entails exactly.
1: currently working on a multi-year residency and interdisciplinary project with the poet Ross Gay and his poem length book Beholding. I there seem to be so many different facets to this project and I'm so so intrigued with it and I cannot wait to see what happens including working with 12th grade students I believe. Can you talk about the vision of this project how it came to be and what what you're imagining for it when it comes to fruition?
2: So this is a really unique project for us um, in some ways uh, in that I don't think we have ever worked in, on such a large scale um, over this amount of time. So we have a relationship, a very close relationship with the experimental theater director, Brooke O'Hara. It's incredible. She and Ross, Brooke and Ross, have been friends since undergrad. They went to undergrad together. Oh
1: my goodness. It's so a- they are,
2: <laughs> yeah, they're like brother and sister. They're in, have an incredibly close bond. And she said, you know, Ross has this incredible new book length poem that's coming out. And I think, you know, he can send me a preview copy. Let me send it to you. You know, let's read it. I think we can do something with this. Mm-hmm. And so then we, we read it and it's. The poem is truly incredible. I highly recommend for both of you and for anybody listening, um, if you, even if you think you might not like poetry, Mm -hmm. even if you think you are not a poetry person, I highly recommend reading Ross's work. And especially you can find um, videos of him reading Mm -hmm. his own work on YouTube and it's spectacular. He's just really an incredible artist. We were just blown away by the poem and We started brainstorming composers, um, and, you know, we hit upon the idea of Taishan Sori, who's, again, someone we didn't have a super close personal relationship with yet, but we'd all heard his music um, or had maybe played in larger ensemble projects. We thought that this could be a really incredible, big project, and Brooke is the kind of creative thinking mind, so to speak. But we started this project in a way that we don't really know yet where it's going to end. And that is exciting Mm -hmm. and a little, little scary. But we have two years, um, to workshop. We had our first initial workshop last spring, and we're going to do some more in-depth work uh, this fall. It really, I think, I, I can't. I don't know. I know there'll be music. I know that Ross will be reading his work. He's going to be performing in the production. Oh, wonderful. Um, we're so fortunate to be hosted by Gerard College, uh, which is not a college, actually. It's a a uh, boarding school mm. for academically talented students from uh, primarily single income families mm. okay. in Philadelphia. And so they are our sort of host and partner and presenter all rolled into one. And during the course of the production, we will also be doing you know workshops with the students. Uh, Brooke has some, she teaches at UPenn and so some of her theater students are coming to work with them, showing them how we're developing our work the process that we're going to use and then letting them use that tool to sort of develop their own work
3: so speaking about projects um you've been releasing records since 2010 so do you think the recording process looking now at how the music industry is going and online streaming and all those other things um, is still important to musicians chamber musicians and does it pay out in the long run
2: that is a complex question. <laughs> I, I definitely, I think a lot of people have different opinions about that, but maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, you know, considering that the, the the market for contemporary classical slash experimental slash avant-garde slash, I don't know what this is, music <laughs> is pretty small. I don't think that recouping financial returns has necessarily ever been something that we realistically expect. Mm -hmm. When we put out a record Right, we do it more as a documentation to try to hopefully get people's music out into the world Mm -hmm. and to give people a way to know not just what we're doing, but what other musicians um, and artists we admire are doing, Mm -hmm. primarily composers or composer performers. I think one of the greatest things to happen to independent music, not just experimental classical music, or, you know, these terms are terrible. I don't even know what kind of music <laughs> we play anymore. <laughs> don't uh, try and put it, it in a box. That's the last thing to- <laughs> What did, uh, the, there's a great electronic musician named Markville who put it really, really well uh, when, when we were talking with him on our feedback show. And he said, you know, I think that I play unusual music that's the kind of music that I make. So I like that unusual music. <laughs> uh, but one of the greatest things that happen to small and especially unusual uh, musical projects is, um, I'd not to sound like an infomercial, but I think that Bandcamp is really great. Mm. And I hate the other one that starts with an S because <laughs> I, I do not really love the way that artists, are treated in that Definitely. of any, I mean, if you think it's, it's so exploitative and antithetical to the realities of, of needing to survive. And you know, if it's really unfortunate that we have to think about it that way, but we do. And I like Bandcamp because you get money, a way bigger percentage of that money into the hands of the artists. And I, yeah, so I really appreciate that. And that's been also really helpful for us because you know, relying on a label also is something that isn't, I'll, I'll tread lightly here, I think it, it there are benefits and mm-hmm. drawbacks to using a label unless the label is really dedicated to your release and to supporting it with PR and funding mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then you know, self-release can be for many people in many situations, it's a much better choice. And, you know, and and I think Bandcamp is really great for that. It allows you to just say, look, here is the music we made, listen to it, pay what you want, or here's a price you have to pay, you can download a track, the whole album. It's so flexible. And I think that 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 has been really beneficial for, for us in particular.
1: So moving on to some of your educational initiatives, you started the Yarn Wire International Institute for both performers and composers, which importantly is tuition free. So I have three questions for this. Firstly, how were you able to ensure that this would be a tuition free program while still paying uh, your faculty?
2: That's a great question. Um, So, you know, we started the Institute in 2016 uh, and we're super fortunate to be supported uh, strongly by our alma mater, Stony Brook University, Mm -hmm. um, which is about 50 miles from New York City out on Long Island. And, you know, we have maintained relationships with a lot of the faculty there. And when we came up with the idea, they were so, Uh, supportive and generous of saying, nothing happens here in the summer, you can use the space. Mm. And so we had that sort of in-kind support of the university to have a place um, and use of instruments so that we could make it happen. And also being a college campus, there are dormitories, there's food services. So it was a a no-brainer at that point. and I think, you know, always our goal has been to keep tuition, uh, and and by that I mean the actual tuition, not the the housing or food costs, which we absolutely can't control. Um, those are not within our means to control, but the, the tuition, we've always wanted to keep it as low as possible, okay. and I think that, you know, that has really translated uh, into how we think about fundraising just in general, and also about, you know, the way we structure even applications. You know, we don't charge an application fee um, and we've tried to make it as easy as possible for people to apply. Um, And the move to virtual, because this past year's Institute as well as 2020, those were both online. And so we looked at our our budget and we said well if we're not paying for 12 days of faculty housing mm-hmm. then we can roll a good portion of that money over towards covering the cost of tuition so that we don't need to charge tuition for this experience um, so it was really really simple and you know, when we hopefully move back into our next in-person iteration of the Institute. Uh, I don't know that we will for sure be able to offer absolutely tuition-free because those costs of housing and food will will have to come back in some form, but that continues to be very strong priority for us is, um, you know,
1: just to increase access through equitable as much as possible. Part of this festival is that you, I. It's important to have composers and performers on the ro- roster, but I just wondered how you had them interact with each other.
2: So usually in the in the in person iteration, uh, we we started with a pretty simple idea, which was oh well, just have all the composers write pieces for piano and percussion. We'll encourage them to use quartet, but we'll let them you know, use any combination or number. Uh, And we created groups with our performers and, and inserted ourselves into those groups so that we weren't just coaching them, but we were part of the groups playing along with them. And then after the first year, we thought, you know, this is great, but what if there were a way to encourage A little more dialogue between composers and performers because, you know, when you're a student, you may not have had the experience or the confidence to really look at your peer as an equal. You know, performers are taught that the composer is sacred and right, and composers are sometimes taught that that performers are just that, you know, they just do whatever you write on the page. So they will interpret your will. And so we wanted to try something that would push that even to the side a little more, you know, even though that's not the way we work, but, you know, still to create a different model. And so we started having them do collaboration projects and we gave them a little guidance, but not much. Try something that you've never done before, or, you know, push yourself to experiment in some way and we'll do an informal presentation where everybody will share their work together and we'll eat bagels, it'll be great. We've stuck with that idea. It was so fun and so uh, exciting that we've continued that each year and, and gotten a little better at, at guiding the process and sort of creating a situation where that can work. And this year, you know, or these two years in the virtual world, we gave them, time. we introduced them, you know, more than a month in advance to each other. Uh, we created pairings and we they presented us with a video at the end uh, of the Institute. And then we live streamed that out for the, the public. So I think it's actually of all the things that we have done, that's the one that translated best these last couple of years.
1: The COVID online model changed the Institute a little bit. Um, obviously you want to get back to being in person, but are there any changes, for example, introducing um, the composers and performers ahead of time? Is there anything like that that you want to keep? Absolutely, yes. I think this idea of being able to be connected
2: to each other, even when we're not in the same physical space is incredibly beneficial for some things. And that idea of, yes, creating more of a longer term community For our institute, rather than just a sort of like two week one off situation. Uh, that has definitely been something I think that we felt was useful and will definitely roll forward into the future. And also, you know, our guest presenters, guest artists, um, you know, again, for a musician, yes, we want to have them there to play a live concert if at all possible. But, you know, we've also invited scholars. Um, We had a really great uh, session or two sessions with the musicologist, uh, Lauren Kajikawa. And someone like that, if they're not in New York, or we had a great presentation from a composer, Clara Iannota, who presented from Berlin. You know, we may not have the funding to fly Clara in from Berlin (laughs) to present her music, but we can definitely Project her up on the big screen Mm -hmm. um, and she can interact with us that way. And I think that those are things that we'll definitely look into trying to keep so that um, we don't always have to rely on everyone being in the same place.
1: So without further ado, wonderful and lovely listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this episode with the lovely and wonderful Laura from Yarnwire. So you can check out all of their details and their socials and their website down in the show notes. Please do follow them and check out all of the wonderful things that they're doing and go to Bandcamp to uh listen to their <laughs> records. And without further ado, thank you so much for joining us today
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the sound Weavers podcast if you enjoyed our show Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Anaya Lockwood, Yarnwire, and Eno Pop, and performed by Yarnwire. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.